Okay, but I feel right at home in the woods here. Yeah, I was uh, I was born a stone's throw away from here. Yeah, in fact, my mother still lives here. Ah! Thanks a lot, Mom. I get the hint. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, how was your week? Uh, it was a week. San Francisco's finally cooling down a little bit. Um, it's been like that, that end of summer heat wave was, was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, we've got fog and everything. I know some people hate the fog and it depresses people. I miss the fog. I miss seasons. I think that's one of the things I miss the most about living on the East Coast is you could always tell when a season's coming just by the difference in the smell in the air. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Yeah, and I definitely get that out here. But uh, to me, there was nothing There was nothing like walking home late at night in a San Francisco fog. Mm. Um, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets before we get started like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list and our bibliography. We're currently going through the fifth season. That's five. That's the last season, uh, season five of the Muppet show, two episodes at a time. We just got started, but um, we're already chugging along. I think with a couple of good episodes tonight. Yeah, this is a good week. I'm interested to hear a little bit about Shirley Bassey, so let's get started. Let's get started. Why don't you tell me about Joan Baez? Singer, songwriter, and activist Joan Chandos Baez was born January 9th, 1941 on Staten Island. She had two sisters. Um, Her father was a preacher as well as a PhD in math and physics from Stanford, so they were very religious and scientific family at the same time. Uh, he was actually credited as the co-inventor of the X-ray microscope. Wow. Her father, her father was early in Joan's childhood. The family converted to Quakerism, which would help mold her later views on social justice and pacifism. She was often discriminated against because of her half Mexican heritage. Um, later because of these factors, she would refuse to play venues that were segregated which meant that when she toured down south, she ended up playing mostly black colleges and venues. Baez claimed that she was gifted with with her singing voice, as to say that it was given to her and that she could take no credit for it. She started playing uh, the ukulele when she was young, and then when she was 13, a relative took took her to see folk legend Pete Seeger, and it changed her life. She bought her first guitar and used it to play Seeger songs in public, so that's how she learned how to play, was doing Pete Seeger covers. Her dad moved the family around a lot, and I mean a lot, a lot, a lot. But after she graduated high school in San Francisco, he was offered a position at MIT, and the whole family headed off to Boston. There, she played her first real gig with eight people in attendance, most of them family, and she was paid $10 to do it. Eventually, Joan met folk musician Bob Gibson, who invited her to perform with him at the 59 Newport Newport Folk Festival. This appearance got Joan a record deal and put her uh, and she put out her first and eponymous record the next year. It sold it sold pretty well. From the early to mid 60s, she emerged as a key figure in the American Roots revival, where she where she introduced audiences to an unknown named Bob Dylan. She would end up 
recording a lot of uh, a lot of songs written by Dylan throughout her career and inspired acts like Judy Collins and Joni Mitchell. In 1962, she was on the cover of Time magazine as the face of new American folk. While Joan wrote a lot of songs on her own, her most famous tracks tended to be covers. And she recorded songs by the Allman Brothers, the Beatles, Leonard Cohen, the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon, Bob Marley, and many others. Throughout the 70s, she kept recording, eventually changing labels to A&M. She released a 23-minute song about her visit to Hanoi in North Vietnam and almost getting blowed up when she was there, but more on Vietnam in a minute. In 85, she played Live Aid. She released memoirs. She played a lot of music. She's a musician. It, but her gifted voice was rivaled by her quest for social justice. She was friends with Martin Luther King Jr., she sang We Shall Overcome at the 63 March on Washington, and that would kind of become her signature song that she would sing at many other protests and events, including the free speech demonstrations at Berkeley. She marched at Selma. She was very vocal about her opposition to the Vietnam War and encouraged draft resistance in the name of pacifism. She marched in several anti-war rallies. She traveled to Hanoi as part of a peace delegation, but like I said earlier, she was stuck there during the famous Christmas bombing of Hanoi for 11 straight days. She has advocated for the Innocence Project, which, which efforts to exonerate wrongly convicted people. She opposes the death penalty. Uh, she's been a giant proponent of LGBTQ rights and has performed uh, many pride parades, including in San Francisco, where she has lived most of her life in the Bay. In 2003, she protested the war in Iraq. Hey, something we have in common and uh, was in on the Occupy Wall Street movement. She dated people ranging from Bob Dylan to Steve Jobs, but as far as I can tell, never married. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. She released more than 30 albums in, in 60 years of performing, recording in eight different languages. She no longer performs and now dedicates her time to portraiture. She is 81. If there was a left-wing cause to be a, a part of, Joan Baez was part of it. That is it just, that's a lot going on. It sounds exhausting, but it's, it's amazing that she kept up with all, because you have to think about just how much logistically goes into going to so many different organizational drives and then dealing with all of the personalities that come with that. And then also just the time that goes in. Plus if she's doing that much, she was probably detained as well. That's, it's very impressive. Muppet show episode number five Oh three special guest star, Jim Baez uh, produced mid March, 1980 premiered December, 1980. This episode has a cultural content warning. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think there are a couple little things along the way that may be the cause of it. So it'll be oh. interesting to see which one, which ones we settle on here. I'm going to get our cold open uh, to remind everybody no scooter anymore. We just have pops. And um, Joan comes in and, and uh, introduces herself to pops and pops describes her as like, oh, yeah, you're that folk singer. Yeah, we've had singing rats, flowers, penguins, horses, pigs. About time they had some folks. <laughs> well, at least you're unbiased around here. Yeah, until you came, we were unbiased. <laughs> I, I give it a nay for effort, though, because it's a creative angle. With uh, the Muppet Show theme, um, when Gonzo blows his trumpet, he's attacked by a group of rats. Uh, this was used in episode 418, but it is apropos for this one. Absolutely. Uh, Kermit comes out to introduce us to our opening number. Um, but first, here is a talented group of folk singers. Well, actually, they aren't that talented. And come to think of it, they aren't even folks. But anyway, here they are, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah! And we get a group of woodland animals where we got some gophers, which are really just the prairie dogs from, uh, remember the prairie dog glee club? Mm-hmm. 
uh, a raccoon, a skunk, some weasels, a fox, a deer, a bear, a rabbit, a beaver, and snakes, and then Rizzo and the rats. This episode's kind of a coming out party for Rizzo. Yeah, I was about to say, this is the first time we've really heard Rizzo voiced, isn't it? Fully, yeah. I mean, I think we've heard his voice before by Steve Whitmire. Rizzo is, of course, played by Steve Whitmire. This is the first time Rizzo starts to get some real personality. He's been on screen. I think he's spoken once or twice, but this is really like Rizzo emerges as the leader of the rats. And they, they all come together and they sing a song called Man Smart, Critter Smarter. Now, the original song is, co- of course, called Man Smart, Woman Smarter. It's a Harry mm-hmm. Belafonte song. But they, they use this as a... But they, they do kind of a Weird Al version of it with the animals singing about how much smarter than man they are. And uh, while they're singing the song in the background, there's a, a, um, a factory just, just pumping smoke into the air. Then, then the gophers commit eco-terrorism. One way to read it. It's basically the plot of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, you gotta save the planet. I'll have to take your word on that. But That's uh, not the last gophers... RPG reference I'm going to make tonight either, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so, yeah, so the animals end up, the gophers end up hooking up some, bringing a, bringing a dynamite plunger onto the screen and hitting the plunger and blowing up the, uh, the factory. But, uh, you know, a good opener. Solid. Um, good message. Very appropriate for the guest. Yeah, appropriate for the guest. We're going to get a lot of kind of woodland critters. The deer and the bear are so we go backstage after the number oh the cultural content warning okay yeah so the rats are everywhere right yeah, there are rats everywhere now we've seen the rats before but in this time this they're front and center this episode the rats are everywhere they were actually in that number before and rizzo actually got a, a single the reason I noticed it is because Rizzo had a single line of dial of he sang a line to, by himself in the song. Mm. He had a solo line in the song. So Kermit's just sick of these rats hanging around. Cultural content warning possibility number one. What would you say? The sleepy Mexican stereotype. One of the rats appears to talk like Speedy Gonzalez. And by I mean appears, one of the rats talks exactly like Speedy Gonzalez. And yes, they do the he has a. He doesn't have a sombrero on, does he? Uh, I think we see one at some point. I don't remember if it was at this point during the episode. Yeah, we do have a um, somewhat stereotyped uh, vision of a, like you said, of a sleepy, sleepy, what what, what did you call it? A sleepy Mexican? It's one of those um, cultural stereotypes, sort of like so many unfortunate ones I could name for for black people or what they did in the uh, Spike Milligan episode with the... It's a small world. Was that the one that featured the horribly racist puppets? No, that was uh, Yokohama. Yokohama oh, yeah. With the, the buck right. teeth and everything. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's shorthand. So so for those who are watching, Rizzo's the one wearing a... He's wearing a yellow hat and he's wearing a t-shirt with a peace sign on the back. Or a jacket with a peace sign on the back. That's that's Rizzo in this episode. So Rizzo's not the one speaking with the Spanish accent necessarily, but but yeah. So th- so that I, I'm going to argue that that's not the only thing in this episode. Oh, not remotely. It gets so much worse. So there's a there's a couple more things along the way. So Kermit tells Bo, he's like, listen, you take care of these rats. Now normally, if you tell a custodian to take care of the rats, he's going to you know take care of the rats. Yes, Beauregard, the gentle soul, 
that is Beauregard to take care of the rats. He's going to take care of the rats. I feel like Beauregard is the incarnation of the wish spell. Like if you don't phrase it very carefully. Yeah, you have to be very specific with Beauregard. Cannot leave anything up for interpretation. So he so he immediately asked the, the rats, of course, what what is it that they want? <laughs> How can he help them? Because he's going to take care of them. We get Joan's first musical number. It's a song called um, Honest Lullaby. I bowed my head at the football games, closed the prayer in Jesus' name. Lost it after football heroes, tough pachuco little Nero's, forfeiting my A's for zeros, futures unforeseen. Spending all my energy in keeping my virginity and living in a fantasy. Where she's singing to a, a puppet named Gabriel, basically a whatnot boy named Gabriel in his bedroom. It's an interesting song when you really listen to it. She talks about her life growing up and then she compares it to her son's life now, who she's singing to as a lullaby. There's also a crack in there about defending her virginity. Yeah, that was a thought. That was uh because it was about it was about her. She said she said something about lusting after boys and defending her virginity. I gotta remember it's not only for kids. It's not only for kids, but it also there was that SNL controversy when Nirvana went on and performed "Rape Me" in '93. '93, yeah. Which it just made me wonder. There's no way that Jim hadn't heard this song before she went on. It's not live, so it's not like it's something that she could have slid past. No. But I wonder if there was any sort of a conversation about it or if they're just like, it's Joan Baez. She is a force of nature. We are going to let her do what she does. Um, probably. And I mean, it's not it's not outwardly offensive or anything. Hmm. It's just a word I did not expect to hear on The Muppet Show. Yeah. But I, I actually really enjoyed this number. I enjoyed the kind of this, the, the swap with the kids. It's got a little Star Trek reference in there. And. I don't know. I, I, I like the juxtaposition of her, her, her life growing up and then her child's life. It's a nice song for sure. Yeah, um, it was nice. It reminded me of the the Paul Williams one from the episode. I guess that was season was that season one or season two. But there's that thing where he's got that window with a skylight. and he's, I think it might have been his opening number. I can't remember what the song was. But it felt very reminiscent of that, just in terms of the tone. Mother who sings to you, dances on the strings for you. We go to the storage room and the rats are trying to break into the refrigerator and Bo comes in and asks them, you know, what they need. And they tell him they and, and they basically they make him an honorary rat, which I have a hard time determining what Bo is in the first place. So he might as well be a rat. I think Bo is someone that wants to be accepted and loved. And not only is he a rat, they make him president of the rats, which is the first time anybody's made him president of anything. And um, uh, and Rizzo tells him <laughs> that his first act as president, like any good president, he, he is told what to do. <laughs> and uh, his first job as president is, is to declare the refrigerator officially open. And uh, upon that, he, he opens the fridge for the rats and they, they dive in. It may be, but the rats aren't quite on the up and up. What was your first clue? Uh, so a weird moment that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you, did not work with my kids at all. Sure, it barely worked with you. It didn't, uh, like, I, I've seen a thousand impressions of Brando and The Godfather. Yeah. I haven't actually seen The Godfather. Yeah. 
it was a weird it was a weird direction for the episode to take. It feels like it's one of those things where she was like, I got this thing I can do. Where she came in and she's like, I, I can be funny too. So, because she's in the dressing room, Joan's in the dressing room, Kermit asks her if there's anything else she'd like to do on the show other than sing. And she goes, well, I do impressions. I do an impression of, of, of Marlon Brando from The Godfather. And as she's preparing, which involves putting cotton balls in your cheeks, which is what Brando did too, Piggy comes in to like, gush all over Joan and how much she loves her and how much she's a role model as a singer and as a woman. And I'm like, Joan Baez does not seem like Piggy's type at all. She's got clout. I think that makes her Piggy's type. Joan then turns around and does her impression of Marlon Brando from The Godfather. It's not the worst impression of Marlon Brando from The Godfather. It's better than mine. I'm prepared to make you an offer you can't refuse. You know, all I require is a little respect from time to time, if you know what I mean. Uh, must have the wrong dressing room. An odd beat, one that, like I said, definitely did not work for my kids. Hmm. They don't know who Marlon Brando is. They definitely haven't seen The Godfather. They don't know what that is. It's not much of a, a joke in itself either. Like, structurally, no. it doesn't really do much. It's just a chance to give her, do, you know, it's it's like we get all these actors in here singing songs and stuff. So she wanted a chance to do something, quote unquote, funny, you know. Mm. So uh, after after that, I would I would argue fairly odd moment. Um, we we get pigs in space where Link cannot handle the fact that there's a rat on this on the swine trap swine track. So we talked about the cultural content warning and it was present. But here's where it gets really, really bad. And I was laughing the entire time because it's ridiculous. But, oh, like my second note on this is just and racism. Because it brought up intelligence tests. Well, you have to get an intelligence test to get into the academy. Right. But in, in conjunction with them just cutting off an entire segment of sentient beings, Intelligence tests were also used to stop people from doing things like voting. The Miss Piggy reveal was amazing, though. Well, better not tell First Mate Piggy. Well, with any luck, she'll never know. I set a trap in the refrigerator and... Ah! Piggy comes in with a rat trap on her face. So that means that she goes into the fridge snout first. Snout first, yeah. Like, just as a habit. (laughs) Well, probably. I don't know. She goes in eyes closed now first. Like it's bad enough if you find out that your roommate's drinking from the container. If you're going straight into the fridge, snout first. It's not not a problem. So Rizzo shows up and Rizzo's wearing a pigs in space costume and he's like, I can be I can be on the crew and and Link yeah, and that's when Link says, You can't be on the crew. There's an intelligence test and he looks at Piggy. Rizzo looks at Piggy and goes, Did he pass the test? She's like, Yeah. And he's like, Okay. Like, so he's not worried about the intelligence test. Um, and then Piggy's like, well, why don't you just tell him that he can't be on the crew because he's not a pig? Again, maybe that's racism. Maybe not. I don't know. It is pigs in space. And then Rizzo says, I can do whatever a pig can do. I can say oink. I can eat garbage. I can roll around in the mud. And Piggy, Piggy, who will do all those things. Last week, she was very excited about her swill. Gets mad and kicks Rizzo across the stage. And then Rizzo, because Rizzo is a gang leader, Rizzo's a thug at this point, sicks the rest of his rats on the pigs. So you think this is, um, let's call it unintentionally coded? Um, I don't. So inadvertently coded? I think it's something that would have just subconsciously coded. I think it's something that would have just gone fine 
in the in the 80s. Like these are things that you would have laughed about in the same sense that Archie Bunker and George Jefferson could rib each other for hours. Or you could have the uh, was it the who did the Frank Sinatra sketch on SNL? <laughs> you and Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. That was it. Yeah, it's the only reason I know that song. Ebony and Ivory. It's the first time I ever heard it. <laughs> but that's just it, though. It's like you. There's <laughs> a there's a part of me that is aware that I I would not have been quite as sensitive to things back when. You also have like was that that was the one where they had like the subtitles, right? Where you would just like read into what they were saying. Or am I thinking of a different? No, that's sketch? something different. That's something different. They had they had the one where they did Ebony and Ivory together. Hmm. And tons of people across racial lines probably thought that that particular sketch was amazing. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm like becoming more conditioned to be more sensitive to this sort of thing at this point. No, I get it. I felt I wasn't, I wasn't as hyper aware of it, but the rats, you know, you've said this about the pigs in the past and I've pushed back. I, I don't, I don't think the pigs are meant to represent any kind of minority. I think the pigs are just meant to represent people. Mm-hmm. But in this, the rats are definitely a minority mm-hmm. that are looked at, down upon as dirty and nobody wants them around. And so I can see I, I can see being a little more sensitive to the the way they're kind of approaching the rats in this. But the image of Piggy with a rat trap on her face is still funny. Oh, that's amazing. Then you also get the rat. And like they one of the great things about the way that they use the rats in this episode is they'll just slide them in in different uniforms, mimicking the other Muppets like they're trying to slide it under the radar. And when you see the rat in the pigs in space uniform, it's amazing. Rizzo's going to get a lot more lovable, hmm. especially when we get to later movies and stuff. We get our UK spot, which appropriately just Floyd and Janice doing a Beatles song, just them doing Blackbird from the White Album. Mm-hmm. Would probably, you know, played would, would have played well in the states. Would play even better in England. Mm-hmm. Just our UK spot. It's just a nice little, nice little breather. Them singing Blackbird. Now here's here's where I think we may have more cultural content warnings. Um, so Joan's in her dressing room and she sings a song called "The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down," which is a, a song written by Robbie Robertson. It was originally recorded by the band. Um, pretty famous song from the 1970s. I wonder if one, just the, the use of the word Dixie gets you a warning now. You know, we know there's a very famous country act that changed their name, that dropped the you know, Dixie from their name, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Also, she does a, she in this, she does a very, um, the song itself is fine. And then she gets uh, interrupted by Rizzo and the rats. And they ask her if she wants to be a rat because they're going to take over the Muppet show. And... um she makes a, a joke about Mahatma Gandhi, but she d- makes the joke about Mahatma Gandhi in an Indian accent. And I think that's another strike on this episode. Yeah. She does I a very so. cliched English, uh, Indian accent, like a, an Apu accent. And uh, she does, she it does have one of the little scary baby Muppets in it, though. It's an aggressive baby Muppet, too. Like that. Who's really into Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not, not uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Because she, she tries to get the book away from him, and she says it's like taking Gandhi from a baby. Well, that's what happens when you take Gandhi from a baby. It's not a great joke either. No, it's not. It's not a great joke. It's not worth it. So for com- for Fozzie's comedy act, uh, Fozzie comes out and tells jokes out in the woods. It doesn't go well. 
it, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, as a even as a Fozzie thing, it's not a. I don't. It doesn't really sell. He has one joke I thought was funny, where he says, "I grew up a stone's throw from here." And then a stone hits him in the face. He's like, oh, thanks, Ma. Which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, it, it had something to do with a five o'clock weasel and a pun, a pun with the five o'clock whistle. And a, Which even that is dated at this point. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely is dated. The idea of a five o'clock whistle <laughs> getting off at five o'clock is dated. Not not a not a great fuzzy bit, I didn't think. It, it, it went along more with the but but it keeps up with our theme of woodland creatures for the episode. Hmm. So for the second week in a row. Kermit fires somebody. Kermit's on a tear. And I still think that he was justified last week. This time, I mean, leadership says that you shouldn't have sent Bo to do that in the first place. Kermit tells Bo, like, what are you doing? These rats are supposed to be gone. And he says that 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 I'm their president. I can't I can't get him out of here. And then he he throws a Moses down on him. Let my people stay! Beauregard, <laughs> uh, they are rats. They are rats, Beauregard. Now listen, you're going to have to choose. Either they go, but they're my friends, or you're going to go with them. (gasps) (gasps) Goodbye. Fozzie comes in and says, uh, Fozzie comes in and Kermit's like, I wasn't too hard on him, was I? (laughs) Got to be tough. Kermit, 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 he's not, you're right, he's not having it. He's been doing this for five seasons now. It's rough. (laughs) You, I would, you would think that after the piggy bombshell, everybody would be on eggshells. After what happened with Piggy last week, but I think that requires a greater degree of self awareness than they actually have. So uh, Piggy is trying to get into the fridge um, when uh, Bo comes in crying because he's got a pack, and he tells Piggy the only friends that he has are Piggy and the and the rats. Which didn't realize Piggy was his friend. I don't think Piggy realizes it either. I'm not sure she agrees, but 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 she acts like a friend because she explains to him the rats don't care about you; they're using you. They're using you to get food. Now, you can't blame an animal for wanting to eat. Can't blame a rat for wanting to eat. But but he, she convinces Bo that they're just using him. And so he opens up the door to the fridge and they're all in there and he tells them to get out. Piggy explains that this is a place for entertaining people and for spreading happiness. And Rizzo says, but after you spread the inter- spread the happiness and do the entertaining, you get to eat? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, let's do it. And so the rats decide that they want to join... <laughs> The cast of the Muppets, because it, they're they're completely willing to to eat, to entertain, and to and to spread happiness if it means they get to eat at the end of the day. I don't know what that says about capitalism. I don't know or entertainment or <laughs> what it says. Um, there's a lot going on with that. There is a lot going on with that. So the rats come out to ask Kermit if they can join the cast, and Joan kind of comes and pushes them pushes Kermit that direction to help them join the family. Cause the, you know, they got a crazy family as it is. So, uh, the, the rats are now part of the family. And then of course, Joan begins singing her final song, um, a song called will the circle be unbroken, which is maybe the most overtly religious song we've had on the show. Probably. There's a lot of, Oh Lords in it. Mm-hmm. And it ends with the, all the Muppets in a circle and in, in two circles surrounding her in this big black, almost void. <laughs> um, uh, and it, 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 Muppet Wiki calls it a celestial setting. <laughs> I guess that's appropriate. This was a song by the uh, Nitty Gritty uh, Dirt Band originally. Yeah, a, l- a little lackluster for me. It's 
I'm not someone that listens to a lot of folk. I think I enjoy covers of Bob Dylan's music more than I enjoy Bob Dylan's music. But I just sort of assumed that it wasn't for me. There was something that I I sort of had to table because I don't know if I've ranted about this movie before on the podcast. But there's a movie from the 70s called The Apple, which has the worst deus ex machina that I've ever seen. But something about her being surrounded by all those Muppets at the end and like this weird universe thing brought made me think of that. Now, here's here's where the the, the story takes a little bit of a turn, because we, we after the after we, we finish out the big number and it, it, it feels real Jesus-y, which is just not my, not my particular flavor. And um, uh, Kermit thanks Joan for being on the show. But she says, you got to watch out, even though she convinced him to let the rats into the family. She then turns turns on this, turns on a dime and says, by the way, don't trust the rats. So that doesn't match up. And she says, because they told me earlier they were think they were going to take over the show. And Kermit's like, they're not going to take over the show. And then as soon as that happens, Rizzo comes in wearing a Kermit collar. All the other rats grab Kermit and haul him off screen. And Rizzo says goodnight to the audience. That feels like a little bit of a they took our job angle. Like that might be me stretching a little bit, but they do. They do come in and take their jobs. You're not wrong. Yeah. I, I personally think the content warning comes from the specifics. Hmm. I think it comes from the kind of speedy Gonzalez, sleepy Mexican stereotype. I think it comes from, the um the Indian accent. I think it comes from mentioning Dixie. I think those are the reasons why. But your broader reading of it, well, I don't think they would I don't think they would say that's why they slapped it with a content warning. Uh I see where you're coming from though. Like it does it does feel that way. And them at the end coming back and like turning on them one last time mm-hmm. to actually take over a show felt a little I don't know it didn't feel great for some reason. It's a solid episode for sure. It's just, it's funny. Like this doesn't. So the, the spike Milligan episode legitimately offended me, but this one is just like, it's weirdly quaint, but I don't know. I I thought it was good. I didn't, I I wasn't as um, in tune to the, uh, to it as you were um, uh, storyline wise. But you know, now that you pointed out, it does feel, I think with, with things of this era, it has the feeling of one through today's eyes. I think so when discussing things like this, especially from bygone eras, there's insensitive and there's spiteful and this doesn't feel spiteful, right? Spike Milligan's episode felt spiteful. It felt rough. It was wrong. That one bothered me. This one I'm looking at and I'm not thinking I can't enjoy this episode. I'm just thinking it's going to be kind of hard to justify this episode if I'm watching it in a room with certain people. Um, which, you know, you can take that however you want to take that. But I don't think, I think there's a difference between like something being hateful and something being insensitive. That I agree with. And this didn't feel hateful. All right, Nick. So the only thing I knew about Shirley Bassey is she recorded approximately 300 James Bond opening title tracks. Something close to that, but, uh, it's, she's lived a life. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to cut out ahead of this and just say, I'm going to gloss over certain periods. Um, just because she has recorded a lot of music 
And yeah. the source that I was looking at featured a lot of singles and things like that. But she's she's definitely lived a life. But let's get into it. Shirley Bassey was born on January 8th, 1937, as the sixth and youngest child of Henry Bassey and Eliza Jane Start in Tiger Bay, Cardiff, uh, in Wales. She grew up nearby in Splot. Uh, there's speculation that her mother married her father while still being married to another man because that man's name was listed as her father on the marriage certificate. She showed evidence of a strong voice very early, though her teachers weren't necessarily supportive of it. She left school at age 14 to work at Curran Steels as uh, a blue-collar worker, and she sang in local clubs and pubs on evenings and weekends. She signed her first professional contract in 1953, touring with a variety show called Memories of Jolson, which was a musical based on the life of Al Jolson, the, the guy that played in the jazz singer, and I'm sure a bunch of other stuff, but that's the only thing I really know him from. In 1954, she gave birth to her first daughter, Sharon, while staying with her sister, Ella, in London. The father is unknown. Ella would raise Sharon as her own until the 1960s. In 1955, Shirley was noticed by Jack Hilton at the Astor, I I think it's Astor Club. It might be a store, Uh, but at the Astor Club, he invited her to feature in Al Reed's Such Is Life at the Adelphi Theater in London's West End. That show would run until November of 1956. She featured on the strong. She featured on the song "Burn My Candle," which would also become her first single, and be banned by the BBC because the lyrics were considered too suggestive. She had her first hit with her rendition of the "Banana Boat" song, our personal favorite. Not too long after Harry Belafonte released it, she reached number eight on the UK charts with that one. She made her American stage debut in Las Vegas in February of 1957. She opened at Ciro's on Sunset Boulevard later that year. Returned to the UK in April of 57, where she starred in Sunday Night at the London Palladium for the first time. Between 1960 and 1961, she had four top 10 hits in the UK. In 1960, she would debut on US TV on The Ed Sullivan Show. She would sign to United Artists in August of the following year. And at that time, she married her first husband, Kenneth Hume. We're on him in just a second. She collaborated with Nelson Riddle and his orchestra on the album Let's Face the Music in January 1963. She also performed at a gala commemorating the second anniversary of JFK's inauguration in Washington, D.C. That same year, her second daughter, Samantha, uh, would be born. And her husband, Kenneth, suggested that Samantha was the result of an affair between Bassey and Finch. He would later try to sue Finch uh, because he believed that he acted inappropriately with his wife, which that lawsuit sounds weirdly British, not like, (laughs) right. There's, there's something about like it, the way that it's phrased is like, you've tarnished the honor of my wife by having an affair with her. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm imagining Hugh Grant's accent as, as you say that there's some white gloves involved somewhere along the way. Absolutely. Uh, She would separate from Hume in 1964. They would be divorced in 1965. Going back a year to 1964, she debuted at Carnegie Hall in February 1965. Her only Billboard Hot 100, or she hit her with her only Billboard Hot 100 release with a theme song for Goldfinger, which we'll see in a little bit. This would peak at number eight, although the soundtrack in general would peak at number one. Um, in 1965, she would also record the title theme for a Bond spoof called The Liquidator, which I have 
never heard of. As well as Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang for Thunderball. He's tall and he's dark and like a shark. He looks for trouble. That's why the zeros double. Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He's suave and he's smooth and he can soothe you like vanilla. The gentleman. That song was not used in Thunderball. They ended up going to Tom Jones, a different Welsh singer for the theme for for that one. But instrumental strains of it would be heard throughout the film. Her UK sales went down a little bit after the Goldfinger hype died down. Um, Also... In 1968, she started to live as a tax exile for about two years. She wasn't allowed to go back to the UK. Uh, She would appear on NBC's The Spring Thing in 1969 and marry her second husband, Sergio Novak. They would be married until 1979. She returns to the UK in 1970 and just has a record-breaking run of of performances at the Talk of the Town nightclub. She returns to the James Bond franchise in 1971 with Diamonds Are Forever. She is featured on This Is Your Life, which we parodied last season, uh, for the first time in November of 1972. The second time would be in 1993. During the 1980s, she focused a lot on charity work, and she went through a semi-retirement, although she would still go on the occasional tour through Europe, Australia, and the U.S. Uh, In 1984, she released... A I Am What I Am, which is a, a sort of a greatest hits album, but she did that with London Symphony Orchestra. In 1985, her younger daughter, Samantha, was found dead in the River Avon in Bristol. And the grief from this caused Bassie to temporarily lose her voice. Um, there was an investigation about that. Bassie was sure that she had been killed by a murder that had been just sort of running large at the time. But in 2010, the court case concluded in They said that they hadn't found any evidence to suggest any sort of wrongdoing. The circumstances are still a little hazy. Jumping forward into the 90s, she acted in a film as herself called La Passion. Um, She received a Grammy for a live album called The Birthday Concert, which was about a concert that she put on during her, her birthday, but that was in 1997. In 1998, she sued for breach of contract by her former personal assistant, who also accused Bassey of hitting her and making ethnic slurs. Bassey won the case, but the incident was lampooned by Alexander Barron in his one-act play, The Trial of Shirley Bassey. She continued to perform at at high-profile events during the the aughts and the tens. Uh, She performed at the Queen's 50th Jubilee Party at Buckingham Palace. Give me just a second... Are you getting emotional about the queen? Is that why you need a second? Uh, no, because I lost my uh, I lost my note. She performed at Mikhail Gorbachev's 80th birthday in 2011. Um, right. she, Rest in peace, him too. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of these are like individual performances, but it's not really. Yeah, that happens later in a career. Here, you know what I mean. Uh, in 2020, with the release of her most recent album, I Owe It All to You, Bassey became the first female artist to chart an album in the top 40 of UK albums charts in seven consecutive decades, which, no matter how you slice it, that's pretty impressive. Especially for someone that dropped out of school at 
14. Um, there's a lot that I didn't cover there. She's had a long and storied career. And there are a lot of songs that I'm sure people's personal favorites that I, I just had to skip over because there's so, so many. Um, but Shirley Bassey. Sounds like so, she was uh, complex. She is. And I think she's still around. Um, but definitely a complicated woman. The Muppet Show, episode 504, featuring guest star Shirley Bassey. Produced between March 24th and March 27th of 1980, it would premiere in the UK on March 15th of 1981, and stateside a few months before that on October 4th of 1980. So, Chad. Yes. I'm sure you've got your bingo card out. I know I've got a couple of catchphrases for things like nightmare fuel, or I'm not sure Mm -hmm. what the other ones are. Uh, but another one that you can mark off if I haven't said it already tonight is getting stuff past the radar because in our cold open, Shirley is greeted in reception by pops who is grooming a rodent because I guess they've reconciled since the last episode or, you know, the protection racket's gotten to wherever it's gotten. Yeah. They're part of the family now. Yeah. But pop says that since she's doing the show tonight, she can brush his rat and her response is oh good then you can comb my crocodile i'm not sure why this sounds like innuendo it might say more about me than it says about anything that they actually scripted but the delivery and the animal metaphors like we're not full bloodhound gang but i was just my one note was dirty i think it's you it's probably me We'll, we'll let the listeners decide but i think it's you oh please judge me charitably so from there we get to the Muppet Show theme, which this raises questions I don't necessarily need answers to, and not for the usual reasons, but Gonzo blows his trumpet and it crows like a rooster, at which point he turns off stage and says, Camila, your uncle's calling. Yeah. Which is a nice touch, but I'm also just sort of like, is that how he usually communicates? I'm probably overthinking this. Probably. I don't know if Gonzo's met her family. I'm sure he's met a, a good number of her family. Gonzo's not going to be shy about that kind of thing. Unless Camila's ashamed of Gonzo, which is entirely possible. Um, he's not a chicken. He is not a chicken. Kind of like a turkey, but not much. So we, we get to our opening number, which is this our first Dr. Teeth bit of the fifth season? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the first time we've seen the full mayhem. Dr. Teeth and the electric mayhem, <clears throat> including Lips, perform Barnyard Boogie. Said the chick in the barnyard pen. Said the duck, won't you let me in? Said the little white hen, let's boogie in the barnyard. Said the sheep rhyming it off home. Said the cow, let the butter roll. Said the little white hen, let's boogie in the barnyard. Outside of a farmhouse with gaffer, Rizzo, and a pig, a sheep, a cow, a rooster, chickens, and an unnamed dog. It's fun. It's great. It's it hops. It does. I could see George Clinton playing this. Like this is it, it hops. It's a solid. It's a solid bit. At the yeah. end of the uh, of the song, Statler and Waldorf add their own lyrics. It says, uh, "Lips sings in this," which uh, was the only time we ever hear that. Well, the barn yard would jump in. Everybody having to flee. Even old McDonald had to do a little corny swing. The song was originally from 1948, which 
I, I wonder how different the original sounds from this, because this definitely has like a 70s funk groove to it. I thought this was kind of banging, which is it funny. Great. For well, it's, it's the Electric Man. Boogie, but still. It's like not going to be the only number in this one that I like either. Oh, no. It's, I mean, we haven't really talked about it as much yet, but Shirley has an amazing voice for it, obviously she because she's had the career that she's had. But yeah. This evening, Uncle Ezra got caught with a dozen eggs. That's right. I saw Aunt Susie chase chicken with bandy legs. Mm-hmm. Whoa, whoa. We go backstage and Scooter informs Kermit that they don't have any gold paint for Shirley's closing number. And yeah, because they're going to do Goldfinger because they're going to do Goldfinger. But I'm thinking about the dancing sacks and everyone boos them on stage. And Kermit tells Fozzie to sack the sacks because Kermit is very fire happy this season. I think he's just but I did laugh at the the dancing sacks because you get the shut up, you old bag joke, which is really dumb and I shouldn't have laughed at, but I did laugh. <laughs> yeah. The dancing sex. Yep. We get Shirley's first number, which is a song called fire down below. Uh, she's in a gold foundry, which has Timmy monster and a bunch of whatnots. Now this is a song that's sliding things past the radar. It absolutely is. Okay. Uh, it, there's, I'm with there's you on no, this one, but also the set just makes me think of so many 80s action movies that happen to have everyone fighting in a factory setting at some point a factory or like a, a building that was under construction yeah like it's just yeah. this is this is the final good, stage for good cheap Parade. sets <laughs> yeah pretty much good cheap sets um, I think there's a lethal weapon movie that ends like this yeah. I'm sure at least one of them does yeah um, Statler thanks Waldorf for saying that it was a great number and this is our first flatulence joke on the Muppet Show. I doubt that. I, I feel like we'd have to go back through. I doubt that's our first flatulence joke. Fire down below. Great number. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. You didn't write fire down below. No, but the guy who did it just had a bowl of my chili. It's a throwout joke, but it is. It's good for a quick laugh. Yeah, I mean, I thought this number was good. Like you said, she's got a great voice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wrote down. Is this dirty? Yes. Uh, it to- I, totally is. I'm also sure it's not OSHA compliant, but you know, what else on a Muppet show is? It's true. She's very gold and shimmering. I feel like that's her entire deal. I, I think when they were trying to write sketches to this, they're like, well, what does everyone know her for? Goldfinger? Well, we love Goldfinger. Gold. And then years later, Beyonce would see Shirley Bassey's performance in this and just be like, I know what to do for the third Austin Powers movie. We, we go backstage again and Scooter. So we give Scooter a lot of grief for being conniving and manipulative and so many other things. But Kermit sent him out to solve the problem and he went out to solve the problem to find gold paint. Um, He finds the better thing because there's a security guard named Bruno who is a fan of Shirley Bassey's and he's also in charge of an armored transport that's moving gold. So he found him across the street in an armored car. Super trustworthy. And Scooter would absolutely go up to a car and be like, hi, you have gold back there, right? Would you mind letting (laughs) us use it? What about for Shirley Bassey? But he's letting the Muppet show borrow 50 million worth, $50 million worth of gold for her closing number. 
Yep. But Bruno, who is stereotypically Italian. I don't know what he is. He's like New Yorker. Yeah. Um, scrutinizes Kermit and Beaker sneaks in to grab a gold bar. At which point Bruno freaks out and Kermit has to assume the position. Poor Kermit. Yeah, he 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 he's going to loan the show $50 million in gold bricks. And for some reason, he's he's racist against frogs. He doesn't trust frogs. And then, yeah, and then Beaker in a very nice uh, moment comes from behind and uh, steals one of the gold bricks and Kermit gets accused. And yeah, he does make Kermit assume the position. So we get to one of my favorite sketches, um, Muppet Laps. Not the least of which because Dr. Bunsen Honeydew's laugh is simultaneously unsettling and hilarious. Because on some fundamental level, Dr. Bunsen ter- Honeydew terrifies me. He reveals an alchemy machine that can turn gold into cottage cheese. Which is very useful. He's solving the hunger crisis very inefficiently. Very inefficiently. <laughs> but Beaker loads up the machine with the gold bar that he took a scene before. Right as Bruno just breaks into the scene. And, you know, Honeydew runs the, the conversion and it completes and it just turns into GAC. Like, I don't know. Turns into were, cottage cheese. It's cottage cheese, kind of. But like in the it's 90s, a, it's, you a, had, it's a loaf of cottage cheese. Yeah, it's kind of weird. But you had loaf. those those toys that looked a little bit like Dippin' Dots in the 90s, which were just like the slime or ooze that they just marketed to kids. And it made me feel weirdly nostalgic. But it is it's effectively cottage cheese. But it the, the consistency makes me think of some of those old like sticky goo toys from when I was a kid. The consistency was um, just, just, com- just, just, uh, discomforting. Yes, I don't think we've seen. No, I, I should take that back. We absolutely have, but an outside performer coming in and regretting their decision quite as quickly as Bruno did, because <laughs> he comes in halfway through a sketch and then goes into the next sketch immediately and realizes that he made a terrible mistake. We go to. Shirley's dressing room where Scooter brings her a bowl of cottage cheese. This is like a, a mini runner. Cause like, I don't think we usually see them dovetail into each other like this. Predictably when she tries to, to eat the, the cottage cheese, it's solid gold and it's turned back to gold. Yeah. Which I'm still going to call what honey did, did a success, but not necessarily the most viable thing. No, I'm, I think honey still did something miraculous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We go to, we're still on stage. We don't actually visit Coosbane, but we have a couple of Azubes from Planet Coosbane performing a song called Isn't This a Lovely Day, uh, which is an Irving Berlin song. Um, and the trumpet Azub plays while another one shoots balls into the air. Sort of like, I don't remember what those children's toys were, but you would load a ball in and then it would like shoot it up every so often. And then eventually one falls on the trumpeter's head but i'm sure i've made this comparison with the fazoobs before this is the most super mario 2 sketch that i've seen yet because <laughs> yeah. it's shooting the, like it's shooting balls but it's like it's shooting the eggs and i can't remember what that character's called i'm more i'm more concerned with this is this all in one they're doing this all in one take mm-hmm. how many takes did they have to do to make sure that the balls that they were dropping ended up back in the hole do you think time? there's someone up there catching it and then dropping it back down I don't think there's a ball flying up. 
That's just only, I think the ball only comes down. I mean, that'd be a good way to work it. I, I that's because because I think if you watch the steam, there's no ball in the steam. There's there's no way you could create that kind of trajectory with what they're doing. They're just they're just pumping out steam. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some. I think I think they release the steam, and then someone up above drops the ball down into the puppet. But they do it like five times. So I just wonder how many takes it took. It reminds me of like a real early stuff. This is something they would have done on like um, Ed Sullivan or something. Yeah. We move to our UK spot, which both of the UK spots for this week are amazing. And I wish they'd been mainline things in the episode. Like if I'd been a kid in the US in the 80s and not and seen the episode, not realized that this was part of it, I probably would have been upset. But the Muppet Orchestra plays a song called After You've Gone, which is a jazz standard. Nigel shows up again. He's conducting Floyd, Zoot, Janice playing banjo, Animal, Rolf, Lips, and the Trumpet Girl, who is playing trombone. And it's a straightforward musical number, but it's nice. It's just yeah, a nice... Like, it takes place in the orchestra pit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It swings. Yeah. It's a good... Just We've <laughs> said this a thousand down. times, and we'll say it again... If you give the orchestra, or if you give the mayhem, or the Muppet musicians in general, room to do something, and just let them go, you're gonna get something amazing. All I wrote down was this swings. Yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I love that her name is Trumpet Girl. Although we pretty much only see her playing the trombone from now on. So we go to um, Shirley's dressing room again. I didn't dislike this but it didn't it felt like one of the weaker things in the episode not because of her voice or anything like that her voice is still lovely it's just the bit's very predictable um we go to shirley's dressing room Fozzie tells shirley that it's driving him crazy to know how much money is hanging around in the theater and everyone's got a little bit of gold fever um and he says that he could use it to buy a lot of jokes from his writer gags beasley which we haven't heard of gags in a while Fozzie's a very loyal customer because that was four seasons ago. It was, but also he hasn't had any jokes that have worked very well. So you'd think he'd move on to someone else at some point. That was Sandy Duncan. Yeah. Last time we heard about gags Beasley and you're right. He's still working with gags. Wow. But Shirley explains that there are many more things in life than money. And she sings a song called pennies from heaven, which when she gets to the chorus, Coins fall from the ceiling, which because of early childhood trauma just made me think of the first Leprechaun movie, but we're going to leave that where it's at. Um, They're eventually joined by TR, uh, Lou Zealand, Dr. Teeth, Rizzo, Beaker, and Gonzo. And they're all catching changes at falls, which I mean, they're Muppets and they're made of felt, but if that money is actually falling from particularly high up, I probably wouldn't be standing under it. Probably not. No. Um, but I, I did make a note that I do really love her voice though. It's, it makes sense that she had the career that she had. My favorite thing about this number is her fear of the pennies. To be fair. (laughs) Is every, every time she'd say, every time she would sing pennies from heaven, it would rain down coins and she would flinch. (laughs) 
<laughs> even though they were coming nowhere near her. But I just, I thought it was funny that she was kind of playing that she was she wasn't um, the happiest that this was happening. But they make some cash. They do make they get a good make they make a good amount of cash too. Okay, this next one is his fault. Yeah, that's one of the things I that was my note is like usually I just feel bad for the newsman because he's a victim of circumstance. He's he's a bit of a sad clown. This one he did to himself. Yeah, this I is cannot I cannot deny that. He is one of my favorite Muppets. I feel bad. Here's a Muppet news flag. Tight security surrounds the Muppet Show with the theater holding over fifty million dollars in gold bullion. Trained guards watch the precious metal round the clock, and dire consequences will befall anyone who so much as lays a finger on it, like so. As he demonstrates, Bruno flips him into the air, and the newsman yells for a doctor. The doctor checks out the gold and says they'll be all right, but stay with him. This is notable because I think this is the only time that I can think of where the newsman just sort of did it to himself. No, no, there was that one with the don't the the ancient tomb and you don't say the magic word that one yeah there was that one too i think i think there's two or three on the list that are totally his fault but he he, it's usually he's usually the victim he totally ron burgundy's this one oh absolutely so the next bit (laughs) which i love gonzo is amazing gonzo conducts rolf at the piano and a whatnot violinist is playing liebestrom I hope I pronounced that well. Yeah, that's pretty good. While he duels Buster the Crab. And he's doing well. Like Gonzo's stuff usually goes up in flames, but this is actually kind of working. Yeah, he he calls for them to get Guinness Book of World Records on the phone. Another reference my kids will never get. Oh my God, is that an outdated reference now? I'm sure it still exists, but I don't know. That's a weird thought. The violinist eventually joins and Gonzo Gonzo might be a match for Nigo Montoya. We'll see. But he actually does pretty well until he stops the battle saying that it's too violent for a family show, which well, he does get that, stabbed. He does. But he gets stabbed with the um I'm forgetting the name of it. The bow. Thank you. The the bow for the violin. Yeah, but he does he does get a nice flesh wound. Pretty, pretty good Gonzo fair. It's a great, and it's a successful Gonzo fair too, which is always nice. Oh yeah. He's very happy with the results. Comes off stage and he's like, I've got a new partner. Buster the clam, the crab, whatever. Buster crab. Buster the crab. And Kermit's like, sorry about that. He's like, what do you mean? Sorry about that. That was fantastic. Ever the optimist. So we, uh, except for the times when he's unbelievably melancholy. Poor Gonzo. I, I don't like he's he's often I mean, the they, optimist. And then every once in a while, he becomes the most melancholy of the bunch. Yeah. Um, we get to, I guess, our, our main number for the night or for the episode uh, where Shirley sings Goldfinger in a bank vault. Goldfinger. I loved this so much, specifically because of Link Hogthrob. <laughs> yep. Because Link Frog Frog sitting there with the with the with the finger while also looking like yeah, he's not got his quite, finger painted gold. Like he's not quite full clockwork orange setup, but that outfit is super British and also Well he's supposed to be kinda of dressed like Goldfinger. I've never actually seen it. I believe yeah, you though. Auric Goldfinger. One of the great Bond villains. Fun fact, the guy who played Auric uh, Goldfinger was dubbed because he was German, he didn't speak English. 
So he was dubbed by a British actor. But, but what's even funnier, not funnier, is uh, it turns out later the movie was banned in Israel because the guy who played Goldfinger was a Nazi. Wow. But then they found out later that he quit the party well before the rise of Hitler, or well before the war started, and that he had actually saved some Jews by hiding them in his house. And so the movie got reinstated in Israel. Roller coaster ride, just with the guy who played Goldfinger. Yeah. In the in the third Bond movie, with the most famous line in the history of Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. At the end of the song. Bruno comes in and finds Shirley alone with the gold and decides that he's going to arrest her, which Bruno is a very, I feel like Sam the Eagle would probably really respect Bruno because he's a very driven Muppet. Listen, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to blame Bruno. He's got $50 million worth of gold. He made the first mistake by being like, yeah, I as a sole defender will be able to watch $50 million of gold and this old rundown theater, which is easily securable. He, tr- he screwed up because he trusted Scooter. I'll give you that. But once he's in it, you know. But yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the image of all the pigs just coming in the back and taking all the, all the gold while she's singing. So mm-hmm. funny. So funny. But yeah, you're right. Bruno. Bruno's totally. Uh, he's doing his job. I got nothing against Bruno. He helped. He helped him with the. He helped him with the whole thing. He did. They wouldn't have gotten that off without him. No. Um, but we get to our close and more to Bruno's credit. He actually apologizes to Kermit for accusing him of stealing the gold. He does. And then Shirley in what might not actually be out of character decides that she is going to blame Kermit for staging the whole thing. <laughs> Cause they turn it around on her. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just mean. Cause you know, and I know that Kermit doesn't pay people enough and he's not, He's not Scrooge McDuck, right? The only one that stole anything was Beaker. And that's, and that's and money that he's that not getting That wasn't him back. masterminding it. Mm-hmm. He's going to somehow have to explain that there is one bar missing. Oh, there's more than one bar missing at this point. Let's be uh, completely that's honest. That's true. Damn pigs. But these were a good couple of episodes. They were. They were. I think Shirley Bassey was just carried by how her pipes. Mm-hmm. Um... But we've had we've had other guests that were carried by pipes that didn't have as satisfying episodes. Like I think this was just a solid all around yeah. episode. It wasn't an episode that, like the gold stuff, all sort of played to Shirley. But the musical numbers were good. Not just hers. The mm-hmm. the mayhem numbers were both good, or the mayhem number and the orchestra number were both really really good. Um, so mm-hmm. we had good musical good musical stuff. Um, had a good Gonzo bit. Yeah, I think it's all around a, a well-rounded episode that just happens to have this powerhouse voice in the middle of it. Yeah. Next time, off with her head. Next episode, we will be discussing episodes 505 and 506 with actors James Coburn and Brooke Shields. Important at one, Nick, I think you're going to really like the James Coburn episode. Okay. Two, the Brooke Shields episode is not on Disney+. Plus. Just want the listener to know that it is not on Disney plus Nick and I are going to be watching it from another source from when it aired on Nickelodeon in the nineties. But, um, yeah, it's not on Disney plus. So if you can find a copy to watch it, great. But if not, we'll be here to tell you all about it. It's a great episode too. It's a shame, but it's, it's not on Disney plus due to copyright reasons. James Coburn, Brooke Shields two 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 really good episodes. So, um, but, uh, until then I'm Chad. 
And I'm Nick. And uh, thank you for listening. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Potowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. I bought gold back when it was cheap. Really? Where is it now? Oh, 